Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. My guest on this episode is a politician, author, and somebody who's joined Elvis Costello on stage. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Angela Eagle. <laughs> uh, I would like to say I joined him on stage with an instrument, but it was just the spinning <laughs> wheel. <laughs> oh, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And yes, your appearance on stage, as with a few of my other guests, you got to got to spin the wheel in what twenty eleven on that tour. Would it have been? Yes, it must have been. Time flies when you're enjoying yourself, doesn't it? But uh, the, I, I mean, I do. And over the years, I've obviously got to know Elvis and and the attractions, and now obviously also, um, you know, the new band. And um, and we were at the Royal Albert Hall, and um, Pete Thomas's daughter asked us sort of innocuously, me and my sister Maria, where where we were sitting and, you know, we were going to go back afterwards. And so I, I sort of, without thinking, sort of told her. And then halfway through, I thought, oh, I think I know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but it was, a, it was an interesting experience. What did you land on? Can you remember? Um, I landed on um, Man Out of Time. Oh, nice. And then the big question, did you get away with not going into the cage? Did you get yes, a seat at the bar? He was, <laughs> he was uh, Elvis was very, very um, solicitous of uh, not making a fool of uh, me or Maria. So uh, I was certainly grateful for that because my go-go dancing isn't up to scratch. <laughs> um, good. But as you say, you've seen him loads of times, haven't you, over the years? You go you go way back as a fan. Yes, yes, Um uh, Pretty much, not not the very very beginning, but uh, but but to the to the um, very very early eighties. Yeah. What was the first record of Elvis's that you can remember hearing or buying? Well, I bought for my sister um, Armed Forces. I remember buying that when it came out as a kind of Christmas present. I have to say, and this is just a little aside. I I I bought her the Pretenders' first album. And then I thought, oh, I'll just listen to that and see what I think and, and turned into the biggest Chrissy Hind fan that, that nice. it's possible to be. So I thought, no, I'm keeping that. So I went out and got her arm towards <laughs> So was that your way into Elvis as well? You listened to what you'd bought for Maria and then liked it yourself? That's right. And then obviously we went straight back to the earlier albums and, uh, and onwards and upwards from then on in. Didn't realise what a dent it'd make in my bank account. <laughs> what was it about Elvis that uh, particularly grabbed you back then? I think it was just the sheer ingenuity and musicality, the ingenuity of the words, and and in the, the and the and and the the meaning in them. Because obviously, um, I'm a politician. I tend to look at things politically, and Elvis was an extremely political young man at the time. Let's face it, and. Um, expressing quite a lot of the sort of rage that a lot of us felt in the 1980s hmm. coming from Liverpool. Yeah. 
I saw you tweeting recently about um, X-ray specs and polystyrene as well. Oh, yeah. So you, music was a really big thing for you at that point and still is now, presumably. It still is. I just don't really have as much time as I'd like to um, go out to gigs. I mean, in our straightened circumstances, there aren't any now at the moment. But I think the biggest thing I've given up in pursuing um, uh, my time in Parliament is that the whips are in charge of your evenings and you know you have to try and sneak off if there's a concert on hmm. and talking of concerts what was the first Elvis gig that you went to can you remember um I it was ooh, I've been to I've been to so many I mean it was in the very early 1980s um and I suspect it was it was uh it was to do with the it was the armed forces the tour that have uh, that went along with that in yeah. the very early 1980s but of course he played a lot of my aim is true in this year's model during that anyway um the 1980s was a fantastically rich time for elvis albums let's face it mm-hmm. well as you've mentioned my aim is true let's use that as a a way into our playlist that we've put together as people know by now i've asked each of my guests to add five songs to the playlist and you can go and listen to it by finding Dangerous Amusements on Spotify. It's five songs, a different song from each decade of Elvis's career. You've gone for a, a real copper-bottomed classic. I know you could have chosen any one of dozens of songs in each decade, but for the 70s you went for Alison. of the live concerts and obviously I've spent a lot of time watching Elvis live so I've watched Alison um, sort of evolve over the years but it never stops being a huge highlight of any live gig that Elvis is likely to play. Yeah you're right to say it evolves because he does I mean not just with this song but others he's always looking for different nuances and ways to interpret his songs and I think he that's attaches why... it he attaches he quite often will do will attach it to another song or there'll be a different endings yeah. um in a, in a live setting so it's it's always really interesting to see what he does with it yeah he's done tracks of my tears hasn't he and I think suspicious minds things like that he's added on yeah, to Alice he's, al- he's always attaching different songs that have similar chord progressions or similar sentiments in an interesting way so the one thing you don't get with live concerts uh, and Elvis Costello is um, the same old stuff over and over again done the same way it's always fresh and original and different Yes, and there's that nice bit on Spectacle when he's got Sting on as his guest and and they're kind of pulling Alison apart and then kind of performing it differently as well. And the songs don't stay as they are at the moment he records them. They live on, don't they? They do, and obviously he's he's got a fantastic back catalogue where he'll put new words to the same tune or the same words to completely different tunes. He sort of works through how he creates these songs and, and, and as you say, pulls them apart and puts them back together with surprising effects sometimes. But I think Alison is pretty perfect to start with. So although he's, um, he's illuminated it with different ways of playing it live, it's still basically the same song. 
And for all that it's such a classic now and rightly regarded as such, it wasn't a hit when he released it in 1977. It failed to chart, released on My Aim Is True, which went to 14 in the UK album chart. However, Linda Rodstad's version did go on to become a modest hit. And I think Elvis saying he, you know, he got a little bit of money from that that then enabled him to go on and, and do other things. I mean, a lot of Elvis's songs are covered by other people in interesting ways, let's face it, because he's such a songsmith himself. And he, he his voice doesn't always suit um, the songs that he writes. I mean, sometimes it's perfect, mm-hmm. uh, but sometimes other people can interpret his songs in a, in a, a way that's uh, more likely to sell, I think. Yeah. He wasn't too keen on the cover by Linda Ronstadt. Uh, He said at the time, they're like sheer torture, dreadful, a total waste of vinyl. I'm sure that he uh, put the um, royalty checks into the bank, though. He he did. He went back to it in the 90s and said, I was snooty about the recordings, but I wasn't so snooty about the money. The money allowed me to do a lot of things afterwards. So, yeah. So, really, he's grateful to Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, I would have thought so. But, of course, very early on, I think he saw himself as a songwriter, not necessarily the person who would go on and perform the songs himself, which is what you were saying a moment or so ago. He he could have had a great career as just a professional songwriter. I think the um, one of the most interesting things about Elvis, and we'll probably come on to this later, is how many just stupendous writers of songs that he's collaborated with, and more than held his own. Um, you know, Burt Bacharach, Carol King, um, Paul McCartney. I mean, you, you'd think if you were um, a songsmith and you walked into the room with any of them, you'd, you wouldn't quite know where to put yourself. But Elvis always seems to be... Um, very confident and and um, good enough and confident enough to do really unique things with these other fantastic singer-songwriters and produce something really unique. You talked a little bit about Elvis's uh, political side in his songwriting, and if we move into the 1980s, I mean, that was a decade where there was a lot of overlap between pop music and politics and as you say, Elvis, very much part of that. The songs he wrote and produced, not just for himself, but for other people, doing the specials first album and things. He was he was kind of at the centre of everything that was going on at that time. Yeah, and it was a, a, a very radical time for the influence of music in politics. And, and yeah, you're right, he was um, right at the centre of all of that. I mean, the specials, what was going on there... Um, his political songs himself, um, you know, Stand Down Margaret had, it wasn't something he wrote, but he he did very similar things to that, obviously Tramp the Dirt Down, which came a bit later. I think that he definitely experienced, along with the rest of us on Merseyside, the disdain that the then government had for us. and And it tied in with his angry young man, persona at the time anyway but um he's certainly always been political and he still is and we often when we get to see each other when he's on tour talk politics and catch up with what's going on in various places and one of the best ways of actually looking for meaning in Elvis's songs um is to think about the political element of them it usually gives you a clue well, that must have been an exciting period for you as a, a young music fan. You're presumably, by that point, you're starting to get engaged with the Labour Party. So t- to have all of these musicians who were uh, politically sympathetic to the things that you believed in, that must have been a really exciting period. 
Well, I mean, the the whole the whole issue with with new wave and and that kind of uh, period and the way it then spread out. So, if you think about Ghost Town with the specials, if you think about um, the battles to get Nelson Mandela out of jail and how that all worked long before Live Aid or any of that kicked in. Um, that was the side of um, punk and new wave that I really always liked. And obviously Red Wedge then came up and was um, explicitly trying to get young people more involved in politics. Because as I always say, if you don't do politics, you get it done to you. And I think a lot of uh, the musicians around then knew that instinctively and tried to uh, have a political effect uh, on their fans to try to deal with the sort of hegemony, the conservative hegemony that was destroying the country in the 1980s. And were you going to Red Wedge gigs around that time in the mid-80s? I've been, I've been, I've been to a few, yes, certainly been to a few, although I, I have to say that Paul Weller was not one of my um, my favourite Okay. singers but I like the radical uh, nature of it and the fact that they were trying to engage young people in politics I I didn't need any encouragement I was already well engaged but I I recognized the you know the anti-racist stuff the battle against fascism um, and some of the rather silly comments that um, much bigger stars were making about uh, right-wing politics, notoriously, obviously, Eric Clapton and Bowie, who um, got seduced by some of the uh, far-right ridiculousness, probably under the influence. Yeah. And Elvis not directly involved with Red Wedge, but I I believe he did play a gig up in Newcastle when there was some kind of confusion over whether the artists were going to appear at such and such a venue. And Elvis is, I think, recording for the Tube at the time round the corner in Newcastle and someone quickly gets him across. And there is footage of that on YouTube, actually, which is uh, which is really good to watch. Really a time that I don't remember, but evocative of what I imagine that time was like. I mean, notoriously as well, Elvis did do uh, fundraisers for the miners' strike, including uh, one off at Logan Hall in London, which uh, my sister and I were at. Um, it was a very difficult time for a lot of communities, the miners' strike, and it was just the the sheer sort of um, the government's triumphalism and the sort of attempt to humiliate entire communities as you were destroying them that, that got a lot of us very, very involved in trying to support uh, mining communities. Elvis was no exception to that. He actually put his uh, performance money where his mouth was. And he also writes one of the most monumental songs of the decade on an issue that would have affected your constituents on your side of the Mersey, famed for shipbuilding, of course, as he grappled with the, the various contradictions of the Falklands War and, you know, a boon for industry, but that actually means that we go on and, and we fight a war. That's right. And, and I mean, his lyrics are never one-dimensional he, and politics is never one-dimensional and he's thoughtful and intelligent enough to be able to reflect that. And obviously shipbuilding um, is is still a, a one of the highlights of his live shows. 
it's one of those songs like Oliver's Army that you'll go along and you'll hear a new verse in it that you don't know from the record because he's constantly kind of, as we mentioned before, working with the song. And there's always that bit after the gig where you're comparing notes to see, what what did you catch from that verse? I, I got something about Enniskillen. <laughs> That's right. I mean, he, he often updates, doesn't he, or does American versions of his political songs as well. Yeah, yeah. Was it important to you that you were following an artist who was sympathetic to you. Would it be difficult to be such a fan of somebody who took an opposite view on the issues that matter to you? My goodness, I I, I, I suspect probably it would be very difficult. I can't think of anybody um, that I'm a fan of who, who you know, is, is on the very right political spectrum. I mean, the who never did anything for me, if I could put it that way. Mm. Um, so, yes, I think it, it probably would be. I think that um, given that Elvis's lyrics are such an important part of his songwriting and his politics are worn very much on his sleeve, it would be difficult if I was some kind of right-wing sort of politician, which, thank goodness, I'm not, <laughs> um, for me to admire Elvis. I think this is something a lot of music fans have had to wrestle with, isn't it? Particularly as we've gone through this pandemic and and you get certain artists who are, you know, saying ridiculous things about whether it be wearing masks or calling things a hoax. And people are really having to separate the art from the artist. But thankfully, we're never put in that position by Elvis. No, we're not. Um, we, we can just keep cheering um, his next usually very apposite comment about the presidential election or some such thing. I mean, I think in terms of um, some artists believing conspiracy theories on Twitter, it's just, it's just to me a, a, a huge disappointment if, if um, people think that, you know, lizards are running the world or they ought to believe some of the more nonsensical things knocking around the internet. And the thing about it is it, it's, this is a public health crisis and their opinions might be their opinions, but they can be actively damaging if they peddle that sort of rubbish. Let's talk about some of Elvis's other songs in the 1980s. And I know you, like everybody else, has had a real task to try and pick just one song from this decade for the playlist because it's such a, a rich Almost decade. It's impossible, isn't it? Yeah, a few people have said that. <laughs> and you've gone for a track on Imperial Bedroom released in July 1982 and you went for the opening track, Beyond Belief. the attractions in full flow live to me and it's again another highlight of the live show um with a baseline you hardly ever get i mean it's the attractions at their very greatest and it's always a part of the live gigs that i looked forward to Hmm. Although one of the attractions says that he nearly got the sack because of this song. Um, I think Pete Thomas had turned up a little bit hungover and he claimed that Elvis said he had one go at it and if he didn't get it, he was going to be fired. But Elvis's own account is that he told Pete, you've got one take and then you're going to go for a lie down. But whatever the truth is, it worked and we get a great track out of it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Bruce Thomas is probably one of the highlights of, of, of his fret work as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, this one originally going to be called The Land of Give and Take, Beyond Belief, before it morphed into the version that we that we know so well. And I mean, we've talked in so many episodes on the podcast just about great lines from Elvis's songs, but, you know, history repeats the old conceits, the glib replies, the same defeats. You, it's such a great opening to a song. It reminded me of the nine, uh, 2019 general election result. Mm. I mean, there's just something very profound about Elvis's um, lyrics, and you can always find relevant meaning in them, and uh, never more so than that one today. And a, a different sounding record than the ones he'd done before. This one with Jeff Emmerich, the former Beatles engineer, as the producer. But he was constantly evolving his style, not just through the 80s, but all the way through his career. But this album doesn't sound anything like the ones that went before. And the ones that follow don't sound anything like this. No, I mean, you've got things like, um, if you'd have asked me, I, I, I think I wrote down the whole of Get Happy. Yeah. Uh, for example, and that that's the thing I always used to decorate the house to because it's great music for scraping wallpaper off the walls because the, <laughs> uh, just the 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 rhythm of it is so fast. But then you move from that to something like almost blue or or trust, and, and then of course King of America with uh, with a sort of country sort of. Um, American aspects to it all very very different and it just shows really um the sheer versatility of the man and the and the band of musicians that he had around with him and were you following him through all of those different avenues that he went down so no one or two people there may be a particular album that's not to their taste or their liking particularly but were you were you with him all the way oh yeah um definitely uh, I just think he's too unique uh uh, a voice as a songwriter and a singer not to um, put a little bit of effort into trying to perceive what he's doing because he's so creative. He's um, a person who's very, very realised as an artist and it's always uh, worth putting some time and effort in, not just saying, oh, I like your earlier, I like your earlier work, but not the later work. There's always something in it um, that, that repays effort when you uh, when you listen to it. This is Dangerous Amusements, a podcast with a suitcase of phony wisdom to dispense. If we can move forward into the 1990s, obviously for you personally, things are now changing because having been the kind of, um, you know, the young music-loving Labour member who's going to Red Wedge gigs... By the time we come into the 90s, you're about to take your seat as an MP yourself. Um, in 92, does... yeah. That election was uh, strange because I I got elected, but we lost. Labour lost when we everyone expected that we were going to win the 1992 election. And so it was a very strange night because I had achieved one of my lifelong ambitions at only 31 years old, and yet we had still got a conservative government um so when i went to the commons it was a it was a parliament that was going to last five years where we really had to finish off the task of um dismantling the reputation of the conservative government and then obviously john major was the new prime minister and um that took a lot of time and it was then I realised obviously that I couldn't just go out to gigs whenever I wanted to. I had to sort of 
hoped that they'd be on Thursday nights or or Saturdays or Sundays. Um, but it was a good time because it became clear quite quickly that the Conservatives hadn't really expected to win that election, didn't really know what to do once they'd won it. And then we had Black Wednesday, which destroyed their economic reputation. So then it was just a matter of time. Mm. Well, that's a lovely segue into the song we're going to talk about from the 90s, which is It's Time, which is a song you've added to the playlist from that decade, released as a single in April 1996 and then released on the album All This Useless Beauty in May 1996. And you were saying to me that you see a political message in this song as well. Yeah, I mean, ostensibly, Elvis does this quite a lot, I think. Ostensibly, it's a a story about the end of a romantic liaison and a relationship coming to an end. But I actually think he's talking about the Tory government and that it's time that they went. It's got more than one meaning, as Elvis's lyrics often do. And if you look at the 1996, it was the end of the parliament, which went all the way um, to the end. And uh, and I, I just think it's about it's about getting rid of a Tory government. Mm, the party's over, your time is up. Um, it fits, exactly. doesn't it? Well, it all fits. I mean, again, Elvis's lyrics are often often have three or four meanings, and I suppose you can put on them what you want, and that's what I put on. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> This may be reading far too much into it then, but since you mentioned this to me, I was looking at the lyrics and I was thinking, if if this is a political comment, I wonder if that line about this magic moment concludes when they turn out the light is a possible reference to the famous headline about Neil Kinnock from a few years before. Yes, I mean, again, there's enough ambiguity in all of Elvis's lyrics for you to quite plausibly uh, make that observation. And, I mean, Elvis is... Um, well known for not liking the sun, he he shares the sort of antipathy to that newspaper that the whole of um, the Merseyside region shares after what happened at Hillsborough. And of course, Elvis is also a Liverpool fan, so um, feels I know very strongly about that whole appalling episode. Mm. If we just talk about the song itself for a moment, only a low chart in single list one, number 58 in the singles charts. Um, Did it get that high? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember it being a single, to be honest. And this was, I think this was the first album when I was buying Elvis albums contemporaneously. I'd got into him a few years before as a young teenager, so I'd gone back and bought up the previous albums. And I think this was the first time that I'd actually caught up and I was buying a new Elvis record as it came out. And yeah, I I don't particularly remember this being a single, in all honesty. No, I mean, it's it's not one of those uh, classic pop hits that he's produced, but it's just another aspect to his uh, songwriting. I think, you know, the, the, the two sort of standout albums from the 90s from Elvis's point of view are a sort of brutal youth, which was the last 
Attractions album, which is virtually every track on that I could have picked. Um, And all this useless beauty. Um, It's Time isn't one of the the standout tracks in terms of what you might remember. I mean, all this useless beauty itself is a fantastic song, Mm. but it it just, it's its political aspect that, um, that attracted me to it, I suppose. It seemed very timely. I always like the sequencing of it as well, though. It's the penultimate track. It's this huge, big sounding record. And then you kind of go into, I want to vanish, which is so much softer and quieter and, and quietly heartbreaking, really. Yes. Um, uh, and again, I think Elvis is um, over this time. Is he's um, so used to um, sort of producing albums and realizing his uh, plans for songs that you see these different aspects of what he's capable of. Um, quite often, cheek by jowl on the same album. I mean, there are there are many songs that are unusual that uh, Elvis sings, and he begins then to sing from very different uh, standpoints as different people and sometimes different genders. And I think that that just shows a man who's getting increasingly confident in his own abilities and and also increasing the um, scope of, of, of his ambition. And I think, you know, all of his work demonstrates someone who's increasingly at ease with his own talent and more and more daring about how he expresses himself. And I think All This Useless Beauty is a really good example of that, isn't it? Because they are songs that he'd written in other voices for other people in many cases. So they're, they're quite disparate. But when you put them together as an album, it's one I always go back to. I, I really like All This Useless Beauty. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But you can find several albums a decade, if not more, that you can keep doing that to with Elvis songs because they're so complex and many of them timeless, I think. Mm. Going back to the politics, within sort of a year or so of that album coming out, of course, we had a new Labour government here in the UK and you keep your seat and you're now um, in a party of government. When you're in government, are you sensitive to the kind of things that artists are saying about decisions that you're making? Um, Well, I mean, there are artists that I have respect for that I would listen to um, but you, you tend, in general, you know, artists at that time tended to be on the left, more progressive, usually in favour of peace rather than war, um, quite idealistic about things like that. Um, and that is entirely what you expect, you know. Sometimes if you're in government, the decisions you have to make are slightly um, less black and white than that, and you have other things you have to take into account, Um but yeah, I mean, I would never listen to a an artist as a a voice that was more powerful than any other uh, voice in terms of my own constituents, for example. But uh, uh, Elvis's mum was my constituent for a while. Mm. And you mentioned that you and he would talk politics. Oh yeah. Does that- does that become a difficult conversation when you're in government and your government is making decisions that he doesn't necessarily agree with? No, we just wanted to know what was going on and, and what the inside thoughts were. And I mean, because he's so interested in um, political things anyway, he would he's a keen follower of, of news, an opinionated man. 
And obviously I like that in somebody because it means that they're engaged and informed and you can have a good debate. So he would he would always uh, you know want want to catch up on what was going on and what was what was really going to happen what was likely to happen and he'd always have his own opinions about what should happen he's a progressive man and and he's you know you, you've seen he's he's uh, supported the democrats when he was in america um, out there with dan Kroll, got involved in fundraising and all of that over there he's always going to be involved in stuff like that because at his heart he is a political person he just expresses himself culturally and artistically rather than you know being in being in politics itself well his views on american politics i think to some degree inform the next song that you've added to the playlist as we move into the 2000s the song you chose is the title track off the album with alan Toussaint, river in reverse really about the events that overwhelmed um, Alan Toussaint's town, really. New um, Orleans. New Orleans uh, with Hurricane Katrina. And we thought we'd actually seen one of the greatest failures of a Republican president um, with that uh, inadequate response to Hurricane Katrina and the flooding of the, the overtopping of the levees and the flooding of New Orleans. Um, but now, of course, we've got Donald Trump and coronavirus, which is much, 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 much worse. Um, but clearly, um, this song is is really about the neglect that led to that. Mm. Recorded with Alan Toussaint initially in Hollywood, but then when they were able to go back to New Orleans, they went to New Orleans and recorded with both the Imposters and the Crescent City Horns. And Alan Toussaint has said that Elvis took Katrina and its aftermath seriously and personally. He had definite thoughts on what kind of people should have stepped up further to the plate. And you can hear that anger and that passion in this particular song, can't you? Well, it was a gross failure of stewardship to allow the levees and the protection around New Orleans to be um, weakened by years of under investment in them it became clear but it was also a much more blatant uh, neglect um, in the aftermath of the hurricane itself in that many of the poorest people in New Orleans who were the most vulnerable were basically left to die Mm. and then the town was left to rot and you know, you don't think, unless you know a little bit about America, that in a country that's meant to be civilised and as a democracy, that that kind of neglect would be allowed to fester. So, I mean, certainly looking at the scenes that unfolded after Katrina went through New Orleans, you can certainly identify with Elvis's anger. And I think some of that is about just the very basic... Um, treating of everyone as equals, which clearly, you know, the racial aspect of what went on in New Orleans, the fact that it was black people that were left um, in the most vulnerable position and clearly that there wasn't enough care taken of 
their um, safety. I think that that comes out in Elvis's tone in that song and, and quite right too. Mm. He clearly had genuine concerns about Alan Toussaint's welfare as well, because obviously with communications down after the hurricane, people genuinely didn't know whether people were were alive or not. And he performs a couple of benefit gigs and then with great generosity suggests to Alan, we'll do an album of your songs, which is, yeah. you know, a really touching and generous thing to do. And and typical of him because he... he um, he rates people for their capacity as singers and songwriters and people who've influenced him and uh, and does what he can to assist. I mean, he, as I say, he, he's done benefit gigs before and he's actually appeared in many a small little venue for an old mate in Liverpool without telling, telling a lot of people just to get some money into uh, a particular cause that, he likes and remember a lot of his family are still embedded in the um, Merseyside communities mm. in various places. And so he knows what's going on, even if he's a bit far away these days. Yeah. Well, I think possibly my biggest ever Elvis regret is that I wasn't able to go and see him and Alan Toussaint perform at the Picket in Liverpool in 2007. <laughs> I was wondering, did you go to that one? Did you get I to that? I wasn't at that one. Oh, I, right, saw, okay. I saw them perform in London, actually, um, on on that tour and 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 strangely enough um was introduced to elvis's dad um after that concert because i'd i'd never met him and um the thing about um uh, elvis's dad is that he used to sing with the joe loss orchestra and uh my mum and dad and elvis knows this story my mum and dad first met in the sheffield city hall when elvis's dad was playing with the Joe Loss Orchestra. So we always say, me and my sister always say to him, you know, we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for your dad. Oh, that's a lovely story. Oh, that's great. And did you tell his dad that as well? Yeah, well, yeah, we we, we met his dad and yeah. and it was nice to meet him. It was, uh, he didn't survive for much longer, but it was really nice to see him given all the sort of family, funny family connection. Yeah. I think if I saw him, I would have been disappointed if he wasn't doing the dance from the "If I Had a Hammer" video. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was, it was a slightly older than he was in that yeah. video. I, I, when I when I saw that video first, I, I was astonished at how alike um, Elvis and his dad actually were in their respective youths. Hmm. You mentioned the Merseyside links and. Obviously, there's a tenuous Merseyside link with Elvis and Alan Toussaint, and their first collaboration was was when they worked together on a on Elvis's recording of "Walking on Thin Ice" by Yoko Ono, which I think I'm right in saying that was the song that she and John Lennon were working on the night that Lennon was murdered. So a a sad Merseyside connection, but another one there nonetheless. There are many Merseyside connections mm-hmm. with music. That's a great album, River in Reverse, isn't it? And perhaps isn't as well known outside of Elvis's fan base as it deserves to be because it's it's got such a great atmosphere about it and I, I, it's great to hear Alan Toussaint sing on there as well. I, ju- I just think that, um, as we said earlier, that's what Elvis can do because he's so confident in his own abilities and so open-minded artistic, he brings out or maybe revives um, some of the best in the... Um, very strong um, sort of singer-songwriters he collaborates with, and Burt Bacharach, um, Carol King, Alan Toussaint, um, The Roots, mm. 
you could go on really I mean, you know that he could appear with anybody and hold his own yeah well speaking of the roots it's notable as well isn't it that this is one of the lyrics that he chooses to go back to for wise up ghost um wake me up with a slap or a kiss uh which he reworks with the roots so it's obviously something that he's kind of remained proud of that lyric to river in reverse yeah exactly um but he, i don't know how he remains proud of work as gargantuan as he's produced mm. over the years um because there's so much to be proud of well, you've mentioned Carol King a couple of times, and I'm glad you did because that takes us on to a song that I really love, and I know you do as well because you've chosen to add this onto our playlist as your post 2010 song. The song Burnt Sugar is So Bitter, which was released on Look Now in October 2018. What is it about that song that you love? It's just so much both of them. Um, I'm a huge Carol King fan. I'm one of those people that thinks that um, if you hear any song from the 1970s that you think is fantastic, um, it's usually been written by her. Mm-hmm. And the thing that struck me about uh, Burnt Sugar when I first heard it was how much it is her as well as him. Yes. And you can hear that when he performs it live, by the way. It's it's so much a, a sort of amalgamation of both of their um, the, the the things that you like about them. And um, so I think having two of the best singer-songwriters of our era writing a song together, even though it took a long time, I'm told, um, it was worth the wait. It was. At mid-90s, I think, they wrote this together. And it's incredible the patience and discipline to be sitting on such a fantastic song. And he said himself, he, he didn't think it fitted on any of the albums that he You've released. You've got to wait until the right moment comes along, haven't you? It's like speeches. You know, if you make a, you write a speech and you don't get to give it, it always resurfaces somewhere. None of that work is ever, ever wasted. And so I'm glad that you found the right place to put it. Yeah, I don't know. I think if I'd have written a song as good as that, I'd have had it out the next day. I think <laughs> wouldn't have had the well, discipline to wait so twenty years. Songs, this is the thing. I mean, he he can just and he's so prolific. I mean, that's the other thing that perhaps he shares with Carol King a sort of capacity to uh, write virtually um, to order um, and and to be so creative and be able to be that prolific um, is a very rare combination. I think. She says, what is it that I've done that you want me to be punished? When she woke up one day to find that he had started to vanish. But if you overhear voices, perhaps you should not be less than all. And you're right to say that the collaborations both with Carol King and with other people like Bert Bacharach, Paul McCartney, they work so brilliantly in a way that you've got no right to expect from a collaboration because, you know, you might say musician A and musician B should create something great together, but of course chemistry and personality doesn't always work like that. But in all of those cases, it works and you get exactly what you're hoping for out of those collaborations, don't you? Exactly, and I'm I'm not sure when I've when I first heard my aim is true or that, that I would have guessed that that he had that in him. No. But no, I mean, no. if you look at his, such a, a musical heritage that he's got in his own family and then, and then an interest and a, and a, an openness to learn and absorb 
influences, I think, that comes through in all of... Uh, he's got his own unique voice. Um, but, you know, you, you, you really only have to listen to a spattering of his albums to know that he's always um, open to influence. And so I suppose that demonstrates that he, he's a very good person if you can stay in the same room as him and not be intimidated out of it, um, then you, you know, you, you're going to get the best brought out of you by collaborating with Elvis Costello. I think I said this on one of the previous episodes, but I thought Burnt Sugar is So Bitter was one of the real highlights of the gigs that he was doing just as we went into lockdown. I went to the opening one at the Liverpool Olympia and there was this, I think, Unwanted Number and one or two others off look now that completely hold their own with any of the classics that people know and love for, you know, for so many years before that. Yeah, I think I was there. I was also at, um, at the the last thing I did before we went into lockdown that was out there was actually go and see um, that tour in London. And uh, he he sort of, um, he ended with a, a quick rendition of um, Hurry Down, Doomsday, the bugs are taking over before he <laughs> dashed off on the... Uh, <laughs> on the aeroplane back home. Yeah, no, it was great. And in in a recent uh, Mojo interview, he was talking about what a fantastic tour it felt like for him, probably the best in the UK for 10 years or so. And certainly I, I got that vibe at Liverpool. It felt like a, a different a different kind of affair to some previous ones. But of course, Liverpool is, uh, having been and seen a lot of Elvis up and down the country in various different places, you always get a special gig in Liverpool. Yeah, and not least because his mum is usually there, as she was at, uh, in Liverpool actually, yeah. um, to watch him. He always puts in a bit of effort for his mum. Yeah. Oh well, let's fingers crossed. Hope that we can all get out there and see him again at some point in the not too distant future. Yes, uh, post vaccine, I think, but um, I can't wait. <laughs> Angela, it's been great chatting to you today. Thanks for your time, and uh, it's been lovely talking Elvis with you. Thank you. Let's do it again sometime. I could pick. Five more very easily. Thank you to Angela for joining us. And since we recorded this episode, Angela's been honoured in the New Year's Honours list. So congratulations, Dame Angela. You can find her on Twitter at Angela Eagle. We're on there too. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast or chat Elvis online at Dangerous Amuse. A few of you have been in touch with your own suggestions of the five Costello songs that you'd pick for the playlist. I've enjoyed reading your choices, so keep them coming. And you can also find Dangerous Amusements on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to Dangerous Amusements. Now go and hurl yourself into heaven before the gates close. The theme music for the podcast is performed by Gary Mulcahy.